0: Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond.
1: I'm Emma Johnson.
0: And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program.
1: Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls.
0: Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. Confirming previous research, the Pew Charitable Trusts have found that higher rates of imprisonment for drugs don't result in lower rates of drug use, fewer drug arrests, or fewer deaths from overdoses. The Pew Trust stated their findings in a June 19th letter to the president's commission on combating drug addiction and the opioid crisis. The findings held even when controlling for demographic variables such as education level, employment, race, and median household income. Pew compared publicly available information from law enforcement, corrections, and health agencies in all 50 states. Pew's analysis found no statistically significant relationship between state's drug offender imprisonment rates and three indicators of drug problems. Rates of illicit use, overdose deaths, and arrests. Pew's findings underline earlier studies that cast doubt on the concept that stiffer prison terms deter drug use and related crime. The drug offender imprisonment rates vary by state, with Louisiana leading the way. Massachusetts' rate is one-seventh Louisiana's rate.
2: In a previous episode, we covered the case of Tassos Theophilou, an anarchist in Greece prosecuted for a bank robbery based on flawed DNA evidence. We are pleased to share that as of July 7th, Tassos was acquitted on appeal of the charges against him. He had been held years in pretrial detention, a condition he shared with hundreds of thousands of prisoners in the U.S.
1: On July 14th, Congress member Raul M. Grijalva, a Democrat from Arizona, reintroduced legislation that would ban private prisons, private detention centers, and private transportation, end family detention and remove the mandate that requires Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, to fill 34,000 beds with detainees. The proposed legislation, titled the Justice Is Not For Sale Act, also reinstates the federal parole system, requires ICE to improve monitoring of detention facilities and to use alternatives to detention, and increases oversight to prevent companies from overcharging inmates and their families for such services as banking and phone calls. Representative Grijalva said, "...the mass incarceration policies in this country that award and incentivize detaining individuals have been detrimental to communities of color and severely tainted our judicial system, to continue to detain and incarcerate men, women, and children in masses simply because doing so increases the profit margins for the already overly inflated prison industry goes against our basic principles. Private prisons have consistently been found to be more costly and less humane.
2: On July 19th, Thirty-four refugees held on the Greek island of Lesvos were charged for their participation in an uprising in the Moria detention camp. Many of the refugees were brought to court barefoot and still covered with bruises from the police repression of the revolt. The uprising began as a sit-down strike on July 17th inside the detention center against the lengthy delays in processing. Detention center administrators attempted to turn other migrants against African refugees in an openly racist manner in order to contain the struggle. But later police attacks led to a radicalization of the struggle. In order to defend themselves, refugees began throwing rocks at cops and setting makeshift barricades on fire. While the damage began to spread beyond the detention center, the police were able to surround it leading to a frenzy of beatings and arrests. According to refugees, the beatings continued in the police stations following the arrests.
0: We start off this episode by reading a recent letter from Cindy Crabb, part of Marius Mason's support crew, who writes, an open letter to people who were friends and acquaintances with Marius Mason before his incarceration. As Marius enters his ninth year of imprisonment with nearly 13 years to go, support has been dwindling. Younger activists are understandably focused on current cases and emergency responses. Marius's situation is not a crisis, but nor should he be forgotten. Many old friends and comrades of Marius are either still in shock about the results of the Green Scare in general, or his case in particular, or have distanced themselves from the mess that was Marius's case. I am asking for people who knew Marius who care or cared about Marius, or who were touched, taught, or inspired by his actions and his being, to take a moment and consider how you can reintegrate him into your life for the long haul. Considering his release date is not until January 10, 2030. I am not asking for much. I am not asking you to make Marius the top priority in your life, nor am I asking you to strategize politically regarding his case. I am asking simply this. What would you share with Marius if he were free? If you would share photos of your family, please share them now. If you would ask him for his opinion about a post or an article, please print out the post and send it in. If you'd chit chat with him about daily life, chat him up on paper. Contact and words of support from random strangers is great, but real connection with old friends will be necessary to help him stay sane in the long run. Also, if you'd buy Marius a cup of coffee or take him out to lunch once a month, please sign up for monthly donations. Currently, his expenses far outweigh donations, and while we're thrilled that he now has access to Skype with his kids and that he's maintaining a vegan diet, these things are expensive in prison. The only reason the fund for Marius's commissary is not broke right now is because a good friend left him a few thousand dollars in their will, but this will not last forever, and donations are extremely sparse. You can send checks to Support M. Mason, P.O. Box 201-016, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220, or donate on Paypal at supportmariusmason at riseup.net. If you were told in the past not to write Marius due to potential legal repercussions for Marius, please note that this ban has been lifted, according to Marius's lawyer, Moira Meltzer-Cohen. Marius often takes a while to write back, and sometimes doesn't write back until he's received three to four letters. The atmosphere inside makes it hard to keep track of things, and he is only allowed to keep a limited amount of paper. While the unit he is in currently is much better than the isolation unit he was previously in, his duties in his current unit leave him very little time or energy for communication. Please be patient and keep reaching out. Letters are getting through. If you're concerned that your letters are not reaching him, please email supportmariusmason at riseup.net, and we will check with him directly during a weekly phone call. Thanks so much, Cindy Crab. We at KiteLine also want to urge people who might be interested in writing to Marius to please do so now. As you'll hear from the following interview with Chandra Delaney, mother of Dallas 6 defendant Carrington Keys, consistent contact between prisoners and those on the outside is vital. In this interview, Chandra talks about her son's case, injustices she's witnessed from outside of the walls, and the ways in which her son's ability to communicate with her has been key in helping him and others on the inside.
3: My name is Chandra Delaney, and I'm with the Human Rights Coalition in Pittsburgh. I came in as a parent of a prisoner, and from there I began advocating for other prisoners. I started advocating for my son around 2000. He became incarcerated in 1999. He got a sentence of 5 to 20, and upon his first year in, problems began. And so that's how I kind of got involved. I started um, writing, I was doing a lot of letter writing and doing a lot of um, phone calling to people to try to get help for the situations that were happening to him. He was um, being harassed and threatened a lot. He ended up being in solitary for 10 years. And once he got into solitary confinement, he was, under a constant state of torture and repression. Sometimes he wouldn't get mail. Sometimes they would take all of his writing utensils. He couldn't write me. I mean, I've, I've gotten letters with um, him uh, using a carbon. He took a carbon and laid it on a piece of paper and wrote it with his finger. So, cause you know, like things were happening and they were torturing him and that's how he got communication out to me and also as a method of being able to communicate i had all the prisoners around him you know whoever he was like cool with or whatever i told him to get everybody's address and everybody they all had each other's family addresses and so that way if he was worried about sending the letter out and them throwing it away he would have somebody else write me a letter and tell me what's going on. Or he would write me about, hey, this is happening to so-and-so. Can you write his mother or call his mother? But um, this situation was, was going on the whole time, the whole 10 years that he was in solitary, which kind of led to the Dollar Six uh, situation. Carrington, throughout the 10 years that he was in solitary, he began reading books and learning the law. And he became very good at it. He he helped other individuals around him to fight their cases and, you know, to air their grievances and and get results and he was not liked for that. Because he was a jailhouse lawyer, they began to move him around to different prisons. But every prison he got to, if he saw something wrong, he would whistle blow. He would, you know, give the information out to the human rights coalition and we would begin calling or, you know what I mean, or contacting whoever necessary to get the situation rectified. So after being moved so many times, he ended up at SCI Dallas in Dallas, Pennsylvania. And this was one of the worst situations that I, you know, had over the years of him being in solitary and being abused. This was like one of the worst uh, situations. This place was notorious for abusing prisoners in solitary confinement. The prisoners began writing out, whistleblowing on what was going on inside the prison. They had witnessed deaths. They had witnessed murder, guards murdering prisoners. They had witnessed guards coercing um, prisoners into suicide. One case where Carrington was a witness It was an older white guy. He was a um, he had mental issues, and he was a suicidal person. And they knew this. And the guards they would tease him and stuff. And when he would you know like come back at them you know or say something smart to them, they would react in a bad way. You know, not really caring that he was mentally ill, and they would um, tease him and and tell him, "Go ahead and kill yourself. Go ahead and kill yourself." and Carrington said one day they um, took him out of his cell. Like, if you're a suicidal person, there's a particular cell you're supposed to be in where they can watch you. But they did. They moved him to a cell way far away, and they didn't watch him, and he killed himself. Carrington immediately wrote out and let us know, and the parents were notified. Not from the prison, the prison... I don't know if they never told him, but we were the first to notify the um, parents. And the family actually got a lawyer and filed a lawsuit against um, SCI Dallas. So by that point, the prison was very angry, you know, with Carrington and very ready to retaliate against him. And then with the exposure of the 93-page report, which HRC wrote up, and we also shared the 93-page document with members of our higher government, with the Department of Justice, with the um, Judiciary Committee. Once this got out, that this report was out, that, that led to a very bad week-long uh, campaign of torture against these prisoners. And it was bad. Um, I received a letter on April, maybe April 12th, 2010 that said call up here these guards are beating prisoners they're retaliating against us and I think it's going to get bloody and immediately I called there and they had moved him by that point but what had happened was that on April 10th 2010 my son and five other men held a peaceful protest against all these abuses that had been going on against them and the guards had, you know, they saw the guards had been beating all these prisoners about people whose names were in the report, because it wasn't just the six that were a part of the protest, but everyone was reporting to us what had happened. And so they told the dollar six, you're next. They took a young man by the name of um, Isaac Sanchez and put him into a... Um, It's called a restraint chair, but the prisoners call it a torture chair because basically that's what it is. They take you and tie you down in this chair. Your, Your hands are tied down, your legs are tied down. You're only supposed to be in this chair for two hours. They held Isaac in this chair for over, we believe anywhere from 18 to 24 hours because Isaac said it was daytime, then nighttime, then daytime. And all the while, while he was in there, they were coming in and beating him and stuff. And all the prisoners heard this man screaming, you know, screaming all night because they were going in there beating him. And plus, when you have those straps on you, the reason they say only two hours is because your blood can't circulate. The man could have lost his, you know, his limbs because of this. So that's when the guys were like, you know what? One by one they started covering up their their cell door and the reason they do that is to bring attention to themselves. The higher up in the prison has to come down whenever a situation like that occurs, because it could be a suicide in in motion so the higher up will come down to see you know like what's going on so when the higher up got down there you know they told them what the guards were doing to them and would you please let us let us call the um luzerne county public defender's office so we can notify them of what's happening to us and can you please um let us notify somebody in the media to let them know what's happening to us. And basically it was like, whatever, you know, and they went upstairs and got suited up and and put on the ride gear and came down one by one, beat all of these men on camera, transferred them out to different prisons after that, except for one. Then once they got to the other prisons, Carrington, well, the guys wrote us and told us that they had been beaten, you know. So HRC filed a criminal complaint Against the prison for you know what they did to the to the prisoners, and my son filed a lawsuit against the um, Luzerne County District Attorney because he had been writing her for months, telling her what was going on, and she never did anything. So he sued her for turning a blind eye. The sheriff, who who were supposed to file the complaint that we had wrote up, these two got together with the prison turned around and charged the men with riot. This was three months later. This was three months later when the riot charge was put on them. And then they also gave my son an additional charge, six charges of assault. It took six years, no, seven years. It's been in the court for seven years. It was thrown out like in the very beginning around 2011, I believe. A judge looked at it and said, that's not a riot. But what happened, there was a local judge, well, a local attorney who was running to be a judge. She, somehow the case got in her hands. She overturned it, said it was a riot. Then she was a judge on the case. So, I mean, there was a lot of discrepancies in all the information, a lot of discrepancies and judicial misconduct along the way, but they kept it in the courts and through the seven years, Every time the guys got to court and came with something good enough to rebut whatever they were doing, they would postpone the case. So it's been postponed for seven years, but they finally got their day in court. Last year, they were exonerated of the riot charge, but then they turned around and decided to charge my son, still charge him with the assaults. March 2017, we returned to court with my son, Carrington to be tried for six counts of assault. He was accused of throwing feces on six guards. Through the video, I mean, on the video, what what we did, I exposed the videos. I put the videos out. I made a video and showed it in slow frames and still pictures to show that nothing was ever thrown on these people. And when we got to, by the time we got to court, it ended up being, um, it wasn't a plea, but it was, um, the judge ended up, it it came out if he tried the case before a judge, instead of them going through paying all the money for the jury and the big court, because they would have lost. They decided that if the judge did find him guilty of anything, the most she could find him guilty of would be uh, disorderly conduct. And being that she wanted to find him guilty of something anyway, in my opinion, she she was going to find him guilty of something because she let him go through court for seven years. He was um, found not guilty of these six assault charges, which to us is very a big victory to us, um, and only found guilty of disorderly conduct. And Carrington is, he's happy, you know, he's happy because That was a dark cloud over his head. He's been, you know, this has held him up from coming home. He's been going to parole since 2012. They've been denying him. They gave so many other reasons, and then finally they said it was because of this case when they had no other reasons to give. So now the case is over. He can request to see them again, go before them. Hopefully they will, you know, he'll be home. SCI, Dallas, and well, you know, what? I think I'll start with saying a little bit about Luzerne County. Luzerne County is the same county where the Kids for Cash scandal happened, but mind you, even though those judges are sitting in jail, the corruption in that county is unprecedented, and it is well known and well observed by many people in that city. I've came to that city many times just to to protest and to pass out leaflets and to talk to the people you know, in the city to get their take on things and everybody agrees 100% that it's very um, corrupted, the, the judicial system there is very corrupted. SCI Dallas is a part of Luzerne County. There are around, there's a county jail, a Luzerne County jail, and then there are about three state prisons in that surrounding area. And they all have the same type of issues as far as the abuse that goes on there. And we kind of feel that the abuse stems from this area where Luzerne County is and Eastern Pennsylvania is where the biggest concentration of hate groups. And these people are working in these prisons. So we feel like that's a big part of why, you know, the abuse was going on. Now, as far as visiting my son when he was in that county from Pittsburgh, that's a like a seven or eight-hour drive. I would come on a families from outside bus. They take you know families in to see their loved ones. We would have to leave at two a.m. It would be like almost like a whole weekend because we would leave at two a.m., get there at nine a.m., check in, then we would stay there all day then we wouldn't get back home again until like, it would be like the next day actually when like we would, I think we would leave on a Saturday morning and we would get back on a Sunday morning. So it was like a 24 hour trip, you know, just to see him. And it was just hard, you know. Um, I, uh, they do that everywhere. Like I noticed that they never put the prisoner near you where they never put a prisoner where he's from. And it's hard for all of the families, especially if you don't drive, you know, and and that's and then even if you don't drive, you might not have the money to, you know, to pay to go that far. I'm just happy now he is closer to home and it's only an hour and a half away. I still do take the, the um, bus because where prisons normally are located at, There's no Greyhound that's gone to these little rural areas where they have the prison, so either you drive or you rely on some type of uh, organization that gets the families to the prison. And that's like, it seems like that's everywhere, because every people I talk to in other states, they have the same situation where they're using organizations to get to see their loved ones. Just to talk a little bit about how I got the video from Carrington, when the incident first happened, because he's a jailhouse lawyer, he requested that the videos be saved. If he wouldn't have done that, there would never have been any video. What he did, being pro se, he was allowed to send the video out to his attorney. So, what he did, he wrote down our attorney's name, but he used my address. So, I get a letter one day, a big, you know, a, a legal envelope or whatever, and I open it up. I'm like, you know, what's these DVDs? This was like a year after it happened. So I put the DVDs in and I'm like, oh my God. You know, this is the video of what they did to him. But I never could watch it. I would would have my son watch it, I could not watch. But that's how we got the video. Um, And I was able to, you know, to expose the video. And I got the rest of the guys' videos because One of the 6 was released while the case was going on. He had maxed out, so they couldn't hold him in prison. And he went in as a pro se attorney and he asked for, he needed to see all the videos, so he received all the videos. And that's how we got everybody's videos because they were trying not to use the videos in court. So that's how we got all the videos out and some of them went up on YouTube. And so once they went up on YouTube, they couldn't deny There weren't any tapes or, so, you know, to get that out to me like that, I'm like, oh my God, when I saw that, I was like, we got you. We got you now, buddy.
0: A couple weeks after our interview, Chandra posted this update on the Dallas Six website. She writes, Carrington was transferred to SCI Green in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, last Monday. SCI Green is notorious for torture. This is where Charles Grainer perfected his torture techniques before going on to torture prisoners at Abu Ghraib. Carrington testified as a witness in a case for Andre Jacobs in court this past Friday. I did not hear from him since last Sunday. I got two text notices from the prison tracker system, PA Vine, one that was transferred to SCI Green and another today stating that he had been transferred, but he is not in any prisoner tracking system at this time, which is very frightening to me. He just called me today. As par for course, he is being retaliated against. Upon arriving to SCI Green, he was immediately placed in the hole, when he should be in population. He never received any paperwork stating why. While in the hole, he looked through his property and found that some significant pieces were missing. He had been working on a book. The new chapters he had been working on had been removed, as well as transcripts from the Dallas Six court case and basically anything he had in connection to Andre Jacobs and Dallas Six. Security Major Liggett, who was a recipient of one of Andre Jacobs' many lawsuits, is the perpetrator. Carrington was taken to court wrapped in an electronic vest that could send a 50,000 volt through his body. He was told he was considered a security threat and escape risk. They asked him to sign a paper regarding the vest, but he refused. He reported all this information to the judge, and he believes that she put in a call because he was notified by the same Major Liggett today that he would be moved as soon as possible. You can find out more about the Dallas Six at scidallas6.blogspot.com This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at KiteLineRadio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been Kite Line. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.